Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Bickerty Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, host of the podcast and manager of programs and scholarly engagement at the library. In my various roles, one thing that I routinely encounter in meeting scholars in various disciplines from various institutions are heartfelt expressions of gratitude, even love, for the Christian Science Monitor, the newspaper that Mary Baker had founded in 1908 and to which she gave the objective to injure no man but to bless all mankind. From very early in its history, the Monitor established itself as a global news source. By 1910, it was publishing an international edition, and by 1917, it formally identified itself as an international daily newspaper. So with that in mind, given current world events, we feel inspired at Seekers and Scholars to explore the rich history of Monitor reporting about Russia and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or the USSR. The record of the Monitor's relationship with this part of the world is long and profound, complex, and even dramatic at times. So to join me in discussing the Monitor in Moscow during the 20th century are Dorothy Rivera, Manager of Research Services at the Mary Bakerty Library, and Marshall Ingerson, who served in the Christian Science Monitor's Moscow Bureau from 1995 to 1997. Marshall also served as editor of the Monitor from 2014 to 2017. So it's great to have both of you with us for this conversation on the Monitor in Moscow. Welcome, Dorothy. Hi. And so great to have you, Marshall. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. Dorothy, you've been doing research on the Monitor and its relationship with Russia and the USSR, and there are things in our collections and in other sources that give us an eye into that really deep and fascinating history. But it's also, in in many ways, a very personal story. There is a personal side to the Monitor and its bureaus and its relationship with different cultures and countries. Really, the reporters for the Monitor who were stationed in Russia, and some of them were there very briefly as sort of special correspondents. Some of them were there for stretches of years. One of the things I really do see consistently in the coverage is that The reporters there are drawing a bit of a distinction between the actions of the state and the lives of the individuals. Mm -hmm. I really see a lot of monitor reporters interacting with the people of Russia or of the Soviet Union, talking to them about what their daily lives are, how the policies of the state impact their ability to make a living, how they impact their relationships with others. And I think that's something that we certainly talk a lot about today. Like, what is the distinction between the people and the apparatus of the state? It does seem that these relationships between the monitor and the people of Russia are so significant, and also that there is this very deep and longstanding history. Erwin Canham, who was the longtime editor of the Christian Science Monitor, he writes a book called Commitment to Freedom that Mm -hmm. really is the narrative history of the first 50 years of monitor newspaper coverage. And when he starts talking about the role of the Monitor in Moscow, he feels it's a priority for the paper, partly because of Mary Baker Eddy. She Mm -hmm. is the person who directed the founding of the Monitor, and she had an interest in the country. And Mm -hmm. we've actually done pretty recently an article on Mary Baker Eddy's interest in the Russo-Japanese War. And she makes several statements around that time. For example, she talks to the Boston Globe 
and she's seeing this transition in Russia, because at the time, of course, it was still under the czar, talking about whether or not the legislature in Russia, the Duoma, is really who you should be looking to for forward progress. And she sort of acknowledges that it's an autocracy. She has this great quote, Through the wholesome chastisements of love, nations are helped onward toward justice, righteousness, and peace. And that's what she hopes Russia will move toward after the end of the Russo-Japanese War. So you've got people for the Monitor reporting beginning during the years that the Tsar is still in power and continuing up through today. So who were some of the major players as journalists in Russia during this wide scope of time? There's a couple people who I actually found particularly interesting, and there there are many reporters there over the years, but I tried to focus on people who were there for longer stretches of time and had more significant connections to the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of probably the best known would actually be a gentleman named Edmund Stevens. Um, he begins freelancing for the Christian Science Monitor in 1939. Okay. Um, he's covering the Baltic states, and he covers the Russo-Finnish War. But he ends up being the correspondent in Russia for quite a few years until he leaves in 1949, and then he becomes the Mediterranean correspondent serving out of Rome in the 1950s. He actually married a woman named Nina, who was a Soviet. Mm -hmm. He spoke fluent Russian. He writes a whole series of articles beginning in late 1949 into 1950. It's called This is Russia Uncensored. And this was the first Pulitzer Prize won by the Monitor for Mm -hmm. his reporting there. And it's a series of about 40 articles. It's very pointed in terms of how he talks about both the lives of people in Russia and the effect that the government has on their daily lives. He has this great article, the name for it was The Forbidden Zone, the enclave where you had top government officials, party chiefs, cabinet ministers, factory directors, authors, artists, sort of what you would think of as the elite of Russian society. But there are limits that are placed on their lives and The thing he sort of credits that to is fear, like people are worried about whether or not they can talk to each other about different things, different points of views. And there's one quote, a prudent Russian today hesitates to confide even in his wife too fully. (laughs) Um, And these are the people who hypothetically are in positions of power and really shouldn't be scared of this kind of thing. And they're still really nervous. You mentioned that Russia Uncensored represented the first Pulitzer Prize that the Christian Science Monitor won. Marshall... Give us a sense of what the significance of winning a Pulitzer Prize is in the world of journalism. Well, that's, of course, the big one in in journalism, and it gives a news organization credibility. The Monitor has won seven Pulitzer Prizes, and that's very easy to say. It's very quick. It's not a long explanation, but it implies, you know, this is a serious, excellent news organization. Right. There's a lot of brand power in a Pulitzer Prize. So I think he won it in 1950. 1950. So it was for this series of articles called This is Russia Uncensored. It touches on really everything. Graft, it talks about the pressures on Soviet women. There isn't really anything that he neglects in this. And he had a couple articles that I thought were really touching. And one was talking about the challenges that women who married foreigners faced. It's called The Soviet Wives of Aliens Wedded to Tragedy. Mm. Um, And it's published on November 10th, 1949. And it talks about just how very difficult it became for women in the Soviet Union who were married to foreigners. And it says, some 350 Soviet wives of American citizens who have sought permission to leave the country in the last nine years. 
of these, 15 were married to former members of the American embassy staff in Moscow. 97 of the others are wives of United States Army veterans. Apart from the embassy cases, the great majority are from former eastern Poland, the Baltic states, Ruthenia, or Bessarabia, and were married before 1939, before these territories came under the Soviet Union. But they applied this ban retroactively. You had people who were trying to get spouses out of the country. And this is another thing that Canham actually talks about in his book, what they had to go through to try to get Nina Stevens, Ed Stevens' wife, out of the country. I have this statement here. The permission to get Mrs. Stevens out of Russia was one of the good deeds performed by Ambassador Joseph P. Davis and his generous-hearted wife. And this is great. At one of their diplomatic parties, which the young, handsome Stevens is attended, Ambassador Davies put an arm around the young people and walked them over to Soviet Foreign Minister Litvinov. Max, he said, I want you to give this dear little girl a visa so she can go home and see her husband's folks in homeland. Do it as a favor for me, old boy, right away tomorrow morning. And the amazing thing is that Litvinov did. In 1939, Mrs. Stevens and their eldest son, Edmund Jr., came back to the United States. And that was one of the things that freed Ed Stevens up to go do a lot of the really remarkable coverage he did during the Second World War. And they end up going back to Russia in the early 1940s. So I did a lot trying to sort of figure out what it was actually like being a reporter in the Soviet Union during this period. And it's really hard. Stevens talks about this in sort of a very first-person fashion. In his October 18th, 1949 article, he talks about when they try to leave in 1949, he says, This parting episode was final proof that our move was timely. Of late, we had sensed imponderable walls closing in on us. The air was clotted with hate and suspicion. The press attacks on everything American grew in violence and vitrupation. Closer to home, no week passed without American correspondents being pilloried as spies. The anti-American campaign penetrated even to the child world. Our son and daughter were taunted by their neighborhood playmates as Americanats, now a term of opprobrium. But the thing that kind of bugged me is they'd had a maid, and she left their employment at one point. She ended up marrying a police officer. Mm -hmm. And then she came back to work for them again, and their daughter was seven years old at the time. And this woman is sort of bribing her with toys to try to get her to tell them the things that she's overhearing the adults talking about. They're trying to turn his daughter Well, it obviously did not deter Mr. Stevens. Keith Collins read a book about the history of the Monitor. He does go into a little bit of detail about Stevens' career. I like this tribute to Stevens for his Pulitzer. It was from Leland Stowe, who wrote a nominating letter for the series, and he, he wrote of it, quote, I know of no reporting on the Soviet Union over a period of at least the last 10 years which can compare with the Stevens' series. For breadth and depth, for remarkable marshalling of pertinent facts, for intimate details of Soviet developments to the American people. So it may have bugged you uh, that the Soviets were up to this with the Stevens family, but it certainly gave him material to write about. Oh, yeah. And he's by far the one who discusses the personal experience of being a correspondent in Moscow the most. Mm-hmm. There are certainly other people who do still the remarkable work. Charlotte Sikowski was Mm -hmm. the Moscow bureau chief from 1968 to 1972. Um, She also wrote a series about life in Russia. It was called Russia in the 70s. And she actually received an Overseas Press Club Award for that in 1972. And one of the things that she's talking about is what do Russians really think about? And Mm -hmm. she talks about what it is for the foreign observer to try to figure this out in a tightly controlled society. 
But she says here, insofar as I've had the opportunity to talk with Russians, that is the Soviet people generally, and to observe everyday life, I would offer a few broad impressions. What the Soviets yearn for today is, above all, peace. Second, mm-hmm. a better life. Third, greater communication with the outside world. Marshall, in, in hearing these accounts of the experience of Edmund Stevens and Charlotte Tsiolkovsky, now I know you were in Moscow at a different time. The Soviet Union had collapsed by this point. It's now the Russian Federation. but How cut off do you feel from Boston, from the United States? How on your own do you feel when you're in that position in Moscow, in a a foreign country, and one that is not a friendly country to your home country? Well, when I listen to what Dorothy says, I'm really struck by, in the case of Edmund Stevens, how courageous that really was. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could say, you know, I wouldn't have had the guts to do that. I wouldn't have had the guts to write the stories he wrote uh, with the kind of personal vulnerability he had over there, because you really, you feel like you're on the opposite side of the world in this unbelievably vast country. It's totalitarian. I think that was still somewhat true in Charles Tchaikovsky's era. I don't think it was as scary. I don't think it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the Stalin era. There wasn't as much violence Mm-hmm. Uh, going on. But what strikes me in hearing those stories, and of course I knew Charlotte as well, is just how difficult that was. To talk to ordinary Russians and get a sense of what they think is just logistically very difficult. You have contact, but people are following you everywhere. People are listening everywhere. The people that you bump into, you know, have been selected in right. many cases to bump into you. Uh, uh, um, wow. So to have what feels like unfettered or unconstrained safe conversation is just really difficult to arrange. David Willis was a a correspondent for the Monitor after Charlotte, and his family talked about weekend outings where they would have to apply to the Soviets, tell them where exactly they wanted to go outside Moscow, how long they would be there, how they would get there, who they would meet while they were there, and they would have to get permission to go for a picnic out in the country, you know, an hour, an Mm -hmm. hour out of town there would be reports made of exactly where they did go. So, Marshall, did you have to develop an aptitude for discerning the authentic versus the setup interaction? Quite honestly, no, because of when I was there. I arrived in the years just after the fall of the Soviet Union. So, in a sense, uh, I missed all the drama. And <laughs> the, the really big story had happened, you know, Yeltsin standing on the tank in front of right, the parliament yeah. and all that. So, I was there... Uh, in those early years, they were actually much more interesting to me. But Russia was easy to cover, frankly. For example, our apartment and our bureau was in one of the old Stalin-era buildings built by German war prisoners, where all the diplomats and journalists had been herded. They were grouped together so they'd be easy to watch during the Soviet years. We still had our apartment and our bureau there. And you could see the place in the plaster of the wall in the living room where they had the bug. Mm. Um, And every once in a while, they would come when you were out of town, you know, they would dig it out and replace the battery and then plaster it back over. But by the time I was there, it was pretty much understood that nobody was listening to those bugs anymore. (laughs) In the old days, there were rooms full of typists, bilingual English-speaking typists, who would make laborious transcripts of everything that was said in these foreigner apartments. Mm. Our understanding when we were there is that the room full of typists were no longer there. They didn't have the money to pay them anymore. Many of them were now working for uh, Western companies, Western law firms or consultancies that had moved in uh, to hire these valuable, educated people. 
So Russians were actually very accessible. They were an open people. There's several big train stations in Moscow where you have people waiting for trains to go to every point in the Soviet Union. So you can go there and talk to a dozen people and get a great cross-section of people from everywhere. And I've always thought they were very open. It was great to talk to them. One thing that struck me is that I ran into no anti-Americanism. Hmm. There were people who didn't like American policy, who didn't like uh, the American government, but they didn't hold that against Americans. They had this very clear uh, division. There's the people, and then there's the government. Mm -hmm. In America, we have that sense of ownership of the government. You know, it's a democracy, right? We elected them, and we kind of assume that other people are that way too. So anti-Russian or anti-Soviet feeling in America often came out as a feeling sort of against Russians. Mm -hmm. But that didn't work the other way. I remember talking to one uh, Navy veteran who spent his career based up in Murmansk, um, up near the Arctic Circle. And he said they lived every day in terror that they would be target of an American nuclear missile. But as far as Americans were concerned, he loved them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he thought they were, it was great. You know, we'd like to go to New York sometime. So I'm just curious, you're in the train station in Moscow. How do you broach these people? How do you get this conversation going? I have a translator in tow because I, I, I had functional uh, Russian language, but I would get over my head pretty quickly in, mm. in an interview. So but I could go up and introduce myself, say I'm an American journalist. Uh, I work for a newspaper called the Christian Science Monitor, and uh, I'm talking to you know, as many Russians as I can, and I'm interested in your view on the presidential election or the the economy or the war in Chechnya, whatever. And um, generally see people say, yeah, okay, shoot. People were pretty open and, and pretty easy. Well, that's great. So please, it's been a while since you've been there. Have you maintained any kind of contact with people that you met, either fellow journalists, Russian people, uh, officials? Yeah, when you're in a bureau like that, the, the people you end up getting closest to are the bureau employees. Like we had a bureau manager okay. who would also work as a fixer, you know, arranging things and, and, and then a translator. And there were two correspondents in the monitor bureau at the time. So we had two office manager fixer types. One of those in particular, we have kept in touch with ever since. And then my wife worked at the time for the Baltimore Sun, mm -hmm. and she had a, a young translator that she used that we are still in touch with, too. And interestingly, we've communicated recently about the invasion of Ukraine. Right. And one of them, who, who went on to become a very successful business person in Russia, immediately moved his whole family to Germany and has stayed there. As of the Ukraine crisis? Yep. Uh, in other words, about you know several weeks ago. Right. Marshall, I'm curious, when you arrived in Moscow, what was your perception on how the Russians viewed the monitor? Did the monitor have a reputation in Russia? Did it have a readership in, in Russia? It did, surprisingly. During the Soviet years, it was one of the, the so-called bourgeois Western <laughs> newspapers. Okay. So there were a handful that the Soviets were often citing uh -huh. to Russians, either positively, like even the bourgeois Western press is saying, you know, we've achieved this or we've done this, uh -huh. or sometimes negatively. This is the kind of garbage you're going to get from the bourgeois Western press. <laughs> but either way, what the Russians took in was, okay, this is a major news organization that has stature and is being is taken seriously. So uh, in those immediate post-Soviet years when, when I was there, people had still been educated by that kind of propaganda or government treatment, if you will. So there were a surprising number of people who knew the Monitor, although they would 
be virtually no way, you know, this is pre-internet, so or, or very early internet days. So virtually no way that they could actually have read it. Mm-hmm. Um, you were saying that in, in many ways it was easy to cover Moscow in that period. But what about the rest of Russia? Well, the Soviet Union uh, devolved into 15 different countries. Mm-hmm. And they were all very different. Some, uh, like in Uzbekistan, was pretty much a, a now a Central Asian totalitarian state mm-hmm. uh, with a, a dictator, a president for life, whose picture would be on top of skyscrapers. And in every shop you'd go into, there'd be a loving portrait of, of him on the wall. That was a little bit more like the Soviet era, mm-hmm. when uh, you had to assume that you were being tracked and people were didn't feel too free to talk to you, frankly, if, especially if you started asking political questions, their eyes would start darting back and forth and they'd give you polite non-answers. They just couldn't wait till you would leave. Then there were places like Chechnya where there was a war. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Chechens were a breakaway republic who declared independence just before I'd gotten there. That, that was a war with Russia while I was there. That was a shooting war. That was a fairly dangerous environment that became increasingly so. Mm-hmm. And then there was, if you went to the Baltics, right. uh, which were a wonderful place. They saw themselves as part of Western Europe, really all through their Soviet years. And suddenly they were free to be Western again. And going to Estonia was not unlike going to Finland. It was a small, cheerful country that was finally free and on its way. So when you um, left Moscow in the summer of uh, 1997, was that a good feeling or bittersweet? My wife and I both would have loved to stay longer. Moving to Moscow and in the first place, it still had the glow of the other superpower. Mm-hmm. And there was kind of a land of Oz, you know, where you're stepping through the gates, you know, to see what this great other was really like inside. Our story still had a strong, interested readership for that reason. Right. People were still interested in what was that place? What is that place like? Yeah. So it was very interesting to really see behind the curtain or under the surface. One of the things that struck me was the extent to which it was really a poor country. Right. It was a a very well-educated, sort of a middle-class country, but it was still a poor country. I noticed in all the apartments that we were in in Moscow, which is the most prosperous part of of Russia, uh, all the the faucets always leaked. (laughs) Uh, The water was just running all the time. There's always drip, drip, drip all the time. And you'd ask Russians about it and they'd say, yeah, our plumbing's no good. We can't get that good kind of rubber that you guys have over there, you know, that close things off. And people were jammed in these cramped, overheated apartments with the dripping faucets in these really dreary concrete block Soviet buildings. And a lot of very well-educated middle-class people still grew a lot of their food out in their dacha. You know, you'd see women in nylons and high heels carrying a shovel and a hoe on the commuter train out of Moscow Friday afternoon to go to the dacha in the weekend and till the garden. Right. And it was a point where the older generation had just been crushed by the collapse of the Soviet Union. Their pensions had turned to dust. Right. They had nothing. But it was a time of a lot of excitement and liberalizing uh, and westernizing and building for younger Russians. There was the assumption there that you were looking at a budding new Western-style country. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think under the skin, there, there was always a competing model. Mm-hmm. I actually arranged to have a survey taken by a Russian uh, pollster 
about what did Russians feel like was a good model for what they would like Russia to become. And I was thinking, you know, uh, Germany, Sweden, the United States, Switzerland. But the leading answers tended to be more like Singapore right. uh, or Taiwan or South Korea. Indeed, we've now seen Russia really take sort of a, I, I don't know what to call it, a left turn or a right turn, or maybe it's a right turn, to be more of an Asian autocratic model uh, than a Western European or Western model so far at this point. Right. Well, it's a... It's always changing, a lot of twists and turns, <laughs> as, yeah. as always. But I've really enjoyed getting a sense of the monitor in Russia, the monitor in Moscow. Dorothy, I know there's so much more to this subject. So, Dorothy, for listeners who want to explore it further, want to explore the story of the Christian Science Monitor in Russia or the Soviet Union, how can they go about that? One of the things that we have in our collection are the papers of Erwin Canham is really fantastic. I sort of don't want to overpromise at this point because it's about 300 boxes of material, right. all of which needs to be sorted through process and described. So we're hoping that at some point we'll be able to provide more information on our website about the full scope of the collection. The good news is while we don't have the whole collection processed at this point, we do have a really fabulous research staff, not to toot our own horns here, but they're pretty familiar with the collection. So even if we can't tell you immediately, here's everything we have, you can ask us about the monitor in this particular time period, or you want to know more about Edmund Stevens or Charlotte Sikowski. And you can email us at research at mbelibrary.org. Let us know what you want to learn more about, and we're happy to look into the collection and see what we can tell you. And in terms of doing your own research, actually a really valuable resource is the Christian Science Monitor website, the Monitor website actually has content going all the way back to the early 1980s. So if you want to see Marshall's articles from his time in Russia, you can go to the Christian Science Monitor website and read them there. That's great. Marshall, in thinking about Mary Baker Eddy's vision for the Christian Science Monitor as being an instrument of inspiration, of healing within the sphere of the media, how did your time in Moscow provide evidence of the light of progress the light of inspiration moving the Russian people forward or lifting the experience of the Russian people during your time there? Doing journalism from a Christian sense of love and what that means in a situation like this is to help people understand each other across divides. Right. And in this case, the superpower rivalry, having been the enemy for so long and the, and the the Iron Curtain and the big ideological battle, that was a huge divide. It was wonderful to see it coming down. Right. Part of what we're doing was witnessing that and, and trying to make those human connections, tell the human stories about what life is like, but also sort of the hopes and dreams. And that goes to what I call the models of thought, which is how do people see their world working? Mm -hmm. What do they value? What's important to them? What are their ideals that they they hope for? I was always trying to un uncover that with questions like, what sort of a country would you like to see Russia become? You know, that kind of literal way. And also in, in more subtle ways, this is in some ways a trivial story, but there was an explosion uh, when I was there of new McDonald's restaurants. And McDonald's was such a great metaphor for the new Russia, for the, the bridging of old Russia and the new or the Western. Um, of course, in, in the United States, we tend to think of 
McDonald's is sort of the low end of where you get really unhealthy food. <laughs> we sort of see McDonald's as a healthcare problem, yeah. you know, but um, <laughs> Bloomberg, Bloomberg, yeah. Does, yeah. But in coming out of the Soviet years, just imagine what it's like if you're used to walking into a restaurant where there are employees who pay no attention to you, are not interested in you, don't don't care what you want. And when you can kind of sort of run them down, you have to stand in line in several different places to do whatever your trivial little business is, you know, buying toothpaste or, or whatever, versus going into an establishment, clean, clear, well-kept. And as soon as you walk through the front door, somebody makes eye contact and says, how may I help you mm-hmm. with a smile? Right. And they're actually yeah. trained to do that. Yeah. And if very many people stack up in line, they'll open another window. Mm-hmm. Would you like fries with that? Yeah. Which is a joke here. Right. But there it's like, wow. And so, you know, there were people having wedding receptions in McDonald's. That's the kind of thing that just, to me, makes real whole new visions of how things can work. Right. And, and what life can be like. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Marshall, thank you so much, Dorothy. It's been enriching to learn about The Monitor and just what it has meant over the years to be a newspaper with the kind of vision for being of real service to humanity when in a bureau covering a nation that's as complicated for an American newspaper to cover as Russia or the Soviet Union. So thanks so much, Dorothy. Thank you. And thanks so much, Marshall. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for uh, including me in this. And Dorothy, I thought you did a great job digging into the archives and and making it really interesting and having some good anecdotes and stories to tell. It was very interesting to me. Thanks, Marshall. It It was great to hear from you. It's always nice to see the perspective of someone on the ground. Yes, and it's been great visiting with Dorothy Rivera of the Mary Baker Library and with Marshall Ingerson, formerly of the Christian Science Monitor, to get a deeper grounding into the history of the Christian Science Monitor and its coverage of Russia and the Soviet Union in the 20th century. We look forward to bringing you more episodes on the distinctive role that the Monitor has played in the history of journalism. Please join us for our next episode when we welcome to Seekers and Scholars Heather Vogel Frederick, author of Life at 400 Beacon Street, working in Mary Baker Eddy's household, Among other questions, we will be looking at what was the essence of this place that served as both the residence and the working offices of Mary Baker Eddy during her crowning years. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright. 2022.